to do that. Good morning, church. Um, when I started talking about our, the counterculture nature of Jesus, and I started talking about the fact that you know it would be appropriate for Jesus to have worn tie-dye, I started collecting shirts. I have three now. I have another one to share with you. But I think it really does say what I'm trying to say. So illustration number one is my shirt. Um, what's cool about this is that they, the person put Beatitudes on it too. So this I, I will wear to like the gym and stuff like that. Because there's nothing better than somebody saying, ah, so what's, that, what's up with that shirt? What's, what's that about? And then, you know, you, you, you almost never want to say something like that to a pastor because the next 35 minutes of your life <laughs> are now in their hands. This morning I want to take you to the next in our exploration of the Beatitudes. But I want to remind you as we start that the Beatitudes are in fact an opening to a sermon, much longer sermon, but they are a really powerful opening. And to see them as we normally see them, to read them with the dull, flat tonality that we normally read them, is to do them a tremendous injustice. Jesus is not monotonely saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they... Blessed are He's not doing it that way. And yet that's in, that tends to be how we read him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. And we kind of read them like, oh man, this is such a downer. This is such a bummer. It starts out with happy and joy and blessed and stuff like that. But it's like we cannot read happy and joy and blessed when it says the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. We just can't do blessed in those words together. We have a trouble with it. But I want you to realize again the setting. Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses. He sits down. Speaking ex cathedra is to speak with the highest authority. To speak from a seated position is to speak with the highest authority. He grabs his closest followers. He brings his closest followers in tight. And then he begins to speak. So the setup for this is to set up a very powerful opening address to the world. A very powerful opening statement to the people who will follow Jesus for the generations to come. To the 2,000 years that stretch down to us. The, the point of Jesus' message here is to lay some framework, lay some groundwork that will carry the church forward on for millennia. And so he starts out, and I, I told you that when this thing starts... The, 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 the translation in English has a hard time carrying the power of the idea. In Hebrew, in Aramaic, in the languages Jesus is speaking at the moment, this is not just a ho-hum sort of a phrase. It's not, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
It's something completely different. In the original language, if you were to take this back and read it in Hebrew, if you were to take it back and read it in Aramaic, there's a phrase here that's much more uh, a, a contemporary how awesome, how amazing, how fantastic, so cool. I mean, I, I, somebody was calling me the boss a while back, and I had no idea that that was, that was a cool thing. The guy said, oh, man, that's like the boss. And I'm thinking, I don't, I'm, so, I'm so behind the times, I don't even know when I'm being complimented. And it, this, 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 so this is like, this is boss. I thought boss went out in like 1968, but apparently boss is back. So Jesus says, it's boss. This is the boss to be merciful. That's the idea. It's, it's a phrase that everybody would have gotten. Everybody would have understood. It would have caught their attention when Jesus said it. It is. How awesome is it? Remember, the R is supplied in the text. If you're reading the text, blessed are the poor in spirit. R is supplied. It's in italics. If you're reading your Bible, you see something in italics. It's supplied. So it should just say, blessed the poor in spirit. It should say, how awesome the merciful how awesome to be merciful, for you will receive mercy. How amazing, how fantastic, how awesome, how boss to be merciful. I hope it went over, word, <laughs> I hope it went over better than that when Jesus did it. That when Jesus is doing this, it's a building, it's a powerful statement. It's like, how amazing, how cool, how, ama- how awesome to be poor in spirit. How awesome, how amazing, how cool, how boss to mourn. How fantastic, how beyond your imagination to be meek. It's awesome to be hungry and thirsting for righteousness. It's awesome to be merciful. This is the, the way this thing is going as Jesus is doing. It's building his, his voice. If, if, if Jesus is the speaker, I think he is. And people from all over in multiple cultures are listening to Jesus. He's probably amplifying as he goes up. As, the, as he keeps repeating these seven things, he's probably taking the, to, taking the tonality and the, and the amplification up. Because that's what you do when you're trying to communicate with people. You start to raise the voice a little bit to keep them with you as he's going through it. So imagine Jesus starting out with a solid, how fantastic, how amazing, the poor in spirit. How spectacular. And just going up and up. And by the time he gets to this point, it's a very loud, how awesome to be merciful. How awesome are the merciful. The merciful are the bomb. This is the point. This is the Beatitudes as they were presented in the first century. This is where Jesus is as he's speaking to the people. The reason for the tie-dye? Because everything Jesus says is countercultural at this point. Everything stated in the descriptions he's given is countercultural. He's going against the grain of the people, the norms, the religious society, the religious uh, culture, and the societal culture. Nobody thought poor was cool. Nobody thought mourning was amazing. Nobody thought these things that he was describing were the, were the way they really were. But Jesus is resetting everybody's understanding of what it means to follow God. And he intends to do that with you and me as well. 
2,000 years later, he's trying to reset, readjust, clear up, clear up our understanding of what he's talking about and what it means to follow him. These things are building one on another, and we are getting today to the first therefore, to the this is what happened then. We're finally getting to the transformational side of the description, and I'll come back to that in a minute. It is awesome to recognize your spiritual poverty is the way he starts. It is awesome to recognize your spiritual poverty. It is fantastic when you recognize your spiritual poverty. It is amazing when that recognition... Recogniz- <laughs> they pay me to talk. It is amazing when that recognition causes you to mourn for your spiritual poverty. It is powerful to therefore be humbled by the recognition of your spiritual poverty. It is fantastic to then feel hungry for righteousness as a result of the recognition, the mourning, and the humbling. And then finally, it is a catalytic event that leads you to mercy. It is a catalytic event when that leads you to mercy. You all understand what a catalyst is, right? Have you ever had two-part epoxy? Have you ever used two-part epoxy where you have one part and another part, you mix them together and you get glue separate from each other? They're just two gooey things. And when you spill them on yourself, they're just messy. They don't help at all. When you mix the two together, two-part epoxy, when you mix it together, the glue and the catalyst for the glue, that becomes something really powerful. It is a catalytic event in the life of the individual who has discovered their spiritual poverty, who was broken by their spiritual poverty, who was humbled by their spiritual poverty, and a great thirst grew in them as a result of their spiritual poverty. It is a catalytic moment when that begins to come out in mercy. When a person recognizes their need and finally goes to God to get the answer, the responding answer, the transformational thing that happens to them is they begin to behave in a merciful way in an unmerciful world. A five foot two year old or five foot two inch girl, senior in college, playing what will likely be one of her final softball games in her career. She's played softball through high school. She's played softball through college. She's been on the first team. She's never been a big hitter. She's this tall. She can't really get a lot of mustard on the, on the, on the ball when she swings. She comes up in the second inning of the championship game between a cross-state rival. It's actually Oregon and Washington that are playing. In that second inning, she hits the second pitch, and for the first time in her life, in her softball career, the ball starts sailing towards center field on an arc that looks like it might make it. And it starts to climb, and it climbs to a pinnacle, whereby it is pretty clear that that baby's going over the fence, and for the first time in her life, the ball goes out. There are two other girls on base, 
and she takes off her first base, and she's watching, because that's the first time this has ever happened to her. She's not tall enough to hit the ball over the fence. She's barely tall enough to throw the ball over the fence. And so it's, it's, she's watching this beautiful moment as it sails out long distance. It's not going out at the edges. It's going out at the longest part of the field. And as she watches that ball finally clear the fence, she's rounding first base, and she misses the bag. And as she starts to move towards second base, if she touches second before she, before she touches first, she's out. And so, so her, her first base coach starts shouting at her, stop, 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 you missed the bag, you missed the bag, stop, you missed the bag. And in the middle of her elation, suddenly her brain kicks in, she hears the voice of the coach, and she stops, realizing she's missed the bag. She plants and turns immediately and blows out her knee. So severely that she can't stand on it. She can't put any weight on it. She collapses to the ground. The two other girls are rounding third and headed home. They don't realize what's going on halfway between first and second base. She then proceeds to crawl on her hands and knees through the agony of the blown out knee. You're, walking, you're crawling on a knee that's been blown out toward first base and she touches first base. Now there's a quandary. What do we do? The coach pours out of the dugout to talk to the, to the ump. Says to the umpire, can we help her? Says, no, if you touch her, she's out. Well, what will happen if I put a pinch runner in for her? It'll be a two-run single. She's never hit a home run before in her life. We're all so excited for her. Come on, we've got to figure out a way to make this work. No, you cannot go on the field. And there she stands on first, or there she sits at first base. When the first baseman from the other team, who leads the division in home runs, goes to the home plate umpire and asks the unthinkable question, can I help her? The umpire says, yeah, there's nothing in the rules that says the other team can't help. The shortstop if you know anything about baseball, shortstops are usually some of your best athletes. The shortstop joins the first baseman, and the two of them pick her up. They ask her when they pick her up, do you mind if we help you? And she says, no, sure, yeah, go ahead. Which of your legs is hurt? She tells them it's the right one. And they said, okay, we're going to touch the bag with your left leg. And they cradle her. And carry her to second base. And they touch second base with her left leg. And they carry her to third base. And they touch third base with her left leg. Somebody gets smart enough as they're rounding second to turn on their phone. And there's actually a YouTube video of this if you'd like to watch it. They come home. Arriving at home, touching the base with her left leg. And still holding her. She's surrounded by her entire team who's exultant at what just happened. It's the end of her baseball career. It's the end of her season. It's the last hit, the last actual swing of the bat she'll ever have in competitive baseball. The Central Washington team who carries her around the bases loses the game and is out of the playoffs, out of the championship, and loses the championship by one run. The 
that has been watched by nearly 350,000 people on the internet. Why? Because we understand compassion and mercy and the support of another human being as an exalted way to live. We, rec- we all recognize it. The faithful, the unfaithful, the, 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 the believer, the atheist, we all recognize that to live like that is an exalted, godly way to live. Blessed are you when you recognize your poverty and it causes you to mourn and it humbles you and it drives you to Jesus. Because when you arrive at Jesus, a transformation begins to take place in your life and you begin to live on a different plane. Blessed are the merciful because they finally got it. How awesome it is when mercy starts to be part of your life because it is the symbol, it is the moment, it is the reality that something has changed, that God has gotten hold of you. Now there are lots and lots of people who live merciful, graceful, caring lives who don't even follow, don't even call and claim the name of Jesus. But I am telling you, nobody does this without the movement of the Holy Spirit in their heart. Because everything about our world says you get yours and you take care of number one. And everything about God says, no. To live the life of abundance is to live a life connected with caring for your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Go so crazy, go so wild as to love your enemy. One day, one of the scribes comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question, right? Isn't that the question? Jesus then asks him what he thinks. He quotes the text in the Old Testament, love your neighbor, love God, and love your neighbor. Jesus says, that's it. That's all you got to do. The guy says, who's my neighbor? Jesus launches into a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. They left him half dead beside the road. Some walked by and they ignored him. A priest, a person who claims to be a leader in the church, a leader in the, in the, in the behaviors that are religious, the, the, the one who claims to have the keys, in fact, to heaven and earth, and the one who says that you've got to come into alignment with what he thinks, in order to get to heaven, that guy passes him by. And then a Levite, one of the, the song leaders, the choir leaders, the support staff of the church, those, the administrators, the, 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 the pastoral staff of the church, they go by, and one of those comes by, and he passes him by. And then along comes your detestable, despised, lower than life, in fact, lower form of life, neighbors, the Samaritans. And the Samaritan shows up, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion on him. Is the first impetus of mercy compassion? Is the first impetus for acts of mercy to see someone's need and be touched by that need? 
Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. When Jesus describes who it is that is your neighbor, he describes the person who acts mercifully, compassionately towards you. He describes the person who needs your acts of compassion as well. Because both of these guys are neighbors. You can't be a neighbor by yourself. Jesus was at dinner at Matthew's house. Matthew's got his friends over. Matthew's friends do not make the who's who of Pharisaic invitation. In fact, they're not on the list. They're not on the second list. They're not on the backup list. They're not in the book. Matthew's friends are tax collectors and sinners, one in the same and the like. The tax collectors and the sinners are hanging around at Matthew's house and the Pharisees come to the disciples and they say, Hey, why does your, your teacher, why does your rabbi, why does this, this, this weird little rabbi from Galilee, why does this Jesus character eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at these guys. Look at the mess that he's, he's talking about. Look at them. Why is he hanging out with these people? Jesus then replies, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's awesome when mercy finally gets a hold of you because then you start behaving like God. It's awesome when mercy becomes an impact in your life, becomes an outgrowth of your behavior, a a moment of your discovery of who you are in Christ and in, in your spiritual life. Because when mercy finally gets a grip on you, you're finally starting to act like God. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. You see, the, 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 the priest was all caught up in the, the rules and regulations of how things were supposed to be done. You've got to get the lamb that looks just like this. You've got to kill it just like that. You've got to sprinkle here and sprinkle there and touch this and touch that. And all those things are cool. They're great symbols of who Jesus is. But they had gotten so caught up in the trivialities of religious behavior that they had missed completely the point. The point of the sacrifice was Jesus. The point of the blood was Jesus. The point of the lamb was Jesus. Everything that was here was pointing to Jesus and they were doing everything right and missing Jesus. I desire mercy. I desire transformed heart. I desire persons who come into alignment with me. I desire transformational behavior. The the life that is lived differently from the inside out, not simply the practices that you think are going to save you. The practices can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Religion has taken over spirituality in a lot of our hearts. We've gotten caught up in the trivialities of life and we've missed, in fact, the whole walk with Jesus. You think about all the things we catch ourselves being busy with. You think about all the things we, we will, I will, 
Let me not throw this net onto you. I will find myself caught up in a binge-watching Netflix experience that will take me 12 or 15 hours of my life. Now, I usually don't have that much time all at once, but I'll go back to it. I'll stay at it until I finish. It's like I have this marathon I have to run, and if I don't get to the last episode, somehow I failed. There's probably nothing more trivial than a Netflix binging experience. Because it's always there. I could, spend, I could spread those 15 events out over a year. But no, i got to keep going back and going back and going. And those of you who have never binged Netflix, don't start it. It'll, it'll get a hold of you. We get ourselves caught up in the trivialities of, of, of making money. And I know you, some of you just said, triviality is my foot. That's how I eat, and that's how I pay my rent, and that's why they don't throw me out of my house. Yeah? Okay. When are you going to become content? Is there a number in your head? Have you picked a number? said, I'll be content at that number. Have you passed the number that you thought was going to be content once already? We get caught up in the trivialities of making money. And and the reason I say it's a triviality is because you're not going to get to take it with you. We get so overwhelmed that some of us have been called to work for God. Some of us have been called out of the job that we're in, out of the role that we're in. And the paycheck is such a big difference that we just can't do it. Can't bring ourselves to it. We just, we just we feel it. We know God's got a call in our life, and we don't know exactly how that's supposed to work, but we're caught up in this path that we've, just been, we've been on this treadmill like, like, a, 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 like a guinea pig on a wheel. And we're not making any progress, but we're going. We are caught up in the trivialities of living the life we live, of of the things we take care of, and we get so caught up in everything being perfect in this world that we forget the world we're bound for. I have been living in the frustration of a destroyed front yard for about six months. I didn't water my yard a lot last year, front or back. Actually, if you were to go to my house, both are a disaster area. So I decided back in the spring to start doing some rototilling on my yard, and I rototilled up my front yard. And then all of a sudden, it got hot in June. It's not supposed to get hot here in June, but it did. And triple digits meant there's no planting anything. There's no putting anything fresh in the ground because it's just going to get scorched and killed. So it's a mess. And the angst over my stupid yard has been wearing me out for months. Is there anything more trivial than grass, which no one eats? You water, you mow, and it's just out there for appearances. It's on the side of my house where I don't even walk. No one goes out there. It's just a decoration. But yet... Every time I walk by it, it steals a little bit of my joy. (sighs) 
We get caught up in the trivialities of our experience on the planet, of our religiosity, of our, of our jobs and of our, 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 our supposed status. And we miss what's really important. The transformational call of Jesus is a call to live on a different plane. And, and I'm, not, I'm not calling you to ignore all those other things. God, God has, has blessed you in many ways, and you are a blessing in the things you're doing in many ways. I don't, I don't want you to, to, to just completely walk away and throw it all out and live under a bridge somewhere, unless God says it's time to live under the bridge. But I do want to challenge you with the energy you're putting into the things that are not lasting. Just, just I want to challenge you to consider the amount of energy you're putting into things that aren't going to make it through the end. Jesus said, learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In a moment when religious behavior was the defining of spirituality, he says, I'm not really interested in your behavior. I'm interested in your heart. Once you recognize your spiritual poverty and it causes you to mourn and it causes you to be humbled and it causes you to come to Jesus and when you finally come to Jesus, you discover a transformation in your heart and you begin to feel the first grains, the first seeds of mercy begin to sprout. That's when you know conversion has taken place. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us a prayer to practice. The scariest verse in the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I have thought of this for years as a statement that's almost judgmental. But what if it's just a statement of practice? Every day, every day to hear myself say to God, Lord, forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors. Perhaps it's just a call on my heart by God to amp up the mercy, the forgiveness in my own heart. Perhaps it's just a rehearsal. God is saying, you need to hear yourself say this, Walt, day after day after day. You need to hear yourself say, God, forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors. Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. Lord, I ask for the equal amount of forgiveness that I'm offering to other people. Maybe I just need to practice that because it will work its way into my heart and mercy will be the result. If this is a prayer to practice, maybe the practice of this prayer is the point. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jeremiah is writing the book of Lamentations after the Babylonians have taken the Israelites into captivity. He's heartbroken. He's angry. He's mad at God. He's letting God know it. And he's hitting it straight. I mean, if you read the beginning of chapter 3, he is wildly upset with God. God, you have made my skin like leather. You've locked me out and hidden me in dark places that I could not escape. You've broken my bones. He's complaining. He gets to this point and he says, and still, and yet I remember that through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because of God's merciful covering, sin has not destroyed us. 
The wages of sin is death, and yet we defy them every time we take a breath because the merciful hand of God is over us. He has hidden us in the cleft of the rock and He has passed by and His mercy has covered us and so we can face daily our conflict with sin without being consumed and destroyed. His mercies are new every morning and because of them we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every single morning, every breath, every second, every thought, every brokenness of my heart is covered with a veil of His mercy. If it were not, I would be consumed. Poof! Like a cartoon character. I'd just be a little pile of dust on the ground. Because God is merciful. And so when a person finally gets to the point where they've run to Jesus for help, hungering and thirsting for righteousness to replace their brokenness, when they finally get to that point, when we finally come to Jesus for the answers we can't find, when we arrive there, something changes in us and we find ourselves behaving in a merciful way. Two young girls. Why is it always girls? They're the national track meet, both of them having won several track meets to get to the lead. They're in a 1,600-meter race. It's a long, grueling race. A 1,600-meter race is a long, grueling race. Four laps. Have you ever tried to run a lap fast around a track? Ever tried to run a 440 sprint? Four of those. The two girls break out early and they're in the lead. They're running hard and they're pulling the pack along behind them. And they begin to run out of gas. They drift back through the pack as they come through the final turn. As they come down the final straightaway, they are now at the back of the pack. Girl not used to being in the back sees the girl directly in front of her collapse on the ground. They interviewed her later and she said, I just pushed so hard to get out in front that I had nothing, literally nothing left and she collapses on the ground. Everybody runs by her except for this one girl. She picks her up. They've got 30 lousy meters to finish. Collapsed. 30 meters from the end. Less than 100 yards from being done with 1,600. Less than 100 yards. 100 feet, actually. They begin to, she begins to carry her. She's got her on her shoulder. She's lifting her, and the girl is barely able to move her legs, encouraging her, talking to her, practically dragging her to the finish line. And then, in the most amazing last as she takes her from her left side, moves her in front of her, and pushes her across the finish line ahead of herself. And finishes dead last. What does the Lord desire of you? 
What is it that God would like to see in the hearts of his people? That would do justly. That would love mercy. And we walk humbly. It is a catalytic explosion of transformation that begins when your heart discovers mercy. Let's pray.